Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. In this podcast, we feature three featured storytellers intermixed with a community story slam. We are rebooting in our 12th season by returning to themes from our first season. Our storytellers share stories inspired by the theme Star-Crossed Love, Stories of Faded Attraction. It's story time. This is the night, what a beautiful night, and we call it Story Story. Enter your name, you won't leave here the same on this lovely story story. Side by side with your loved ones, you'll find enchantment here. The night will weave its magic spell with each story you hear. For this is the night, and the stories are right on this lovely story story. All right, and while you're slurping up that last piece of spaghetti, we're going to move on with our first featured storyteller tonight. Now, this featured storyteller has gone through the path that we often see with Story Story. They started as a story slammer, and just like you can tonight by putting your name in the uh, story slammer pot. Then, actually, this was a little different. They were selected for the Slammer of the Year competition. Up with that year, we were up at the Boise Depot, uh, so we selected some of our favorite Slammers from all season long, and then they battled it out. It's our only competition of the year where they battled it out at the train depot. They were on the wrong side of the tracks, and uh, she competed in that. And now tonight, it's her first time as a featured storyteller. So please welcome. Michelle Russell. Thank you, Jody. Is this high enough for me? I think so. Okay. Hi, everyone. Ten years ago, no, that's not right, when my son was ten years old, we tried really hard to find something he liked doing. We tried basketball, and when the ball came to him and the kids started to run toward him, he immediately handed it to the kid nearest him and walked off stage. We tried baseball, no. We tried wrestling, no. We tried Boy Scouts, Definitely not. In 2007, I was recovering from the wounds of a painful divorce and trying desperately to shield my sensitive son from the ruin of everything he knew. I wanted to keep him engaged. I loved my son, but what did he love? We tried painting, better. We tried uh, drawing, better. We tried acting, yes. 
He did local plays at the Boise Little Theater, at the Shakespeare Festival, and at school. And I was happy to drive around my budding star and wait in the green room day after day, night after night. When he was 17, this same boy wrote a book of sonnets called 155, which was a one-up on Shakespeare's 154 sonnets. I'm the mom who bought hundreds of copies and unabashedly gave them to everyone I knew before I read it. <laughs> What's that, Papa? Yes, I, I think Curtis is okay. No, I, I don't think he actually used black tar heroin. Oh, I, I read that one. Yes, uh-huh. I, I think maybe rhyme scheme. Uh-huh. Uh, that one? Yeah, that, that's probably street cred. Uh-huh. We looked in the Boise Weekly for auditions for him to attend. And we found an audition for a musical melodrama. It was called Area 51, The Xmas Files. Hmm. It was to be held at the Prairie Dog Theater, which used to be up off of Rose Hill. In the back of it was the Veterans of Foreign War and a, and a lounge area. In the front of it was the Prairie Dog Theater. The Prairie Dog Theater was a dilapidated old building, and it had uh, as many sketchy characters as it had sketchy corners in the building. We walked in and there was sawdust and peanuts on the floor and a prevalent stale smell. We sat down near the piano to wait for his audition. As we looked around, I could feel his confidence shrinking and his anxiety growing as he took in the adult community theater actor scene. He turned to me and said these faithful words. Mom, Mom, will you audition? What? Will you audition? Go up there, fake an audition, make them laugh. Then no one will notice me. What? You want me to audition and this will somehow help you? Yes, Mama, please. He scooched over to the man who seemed to be the director and whispered, add my name to the list, quickly telling him, this isn't a real audition, this is a ploy, this ploy to make my son feel better. He snorted at me and told me I was next. I marched up to the stage. I turned and faced the audience, lamenting all the while that I always get myself into these things. Sing, sing. <laughs> oh no. I don't know the words to any songs. Oh no, much less the melody. Oh no, sing. Mm, okay. Happy birthday to you. See how this went. Everyone was laughing and having such a good time. I think they thought I was trying to be funny. I wasn't. But it didn't matter, it worked. Curtis successfully, uh, successfully auditioned and away we went. 
Later that same afternoon, my cell phone rang, and the director said, we have a part for you. And I said, oh no, you mean my son. That wasn't a real audition. I can't possibly, I'm not an actor. I work full time. He said, no, no, we mean you. And I said, no, no, you mean my son. And he said, we only have a part for you. We only have a part for him if you take a part. <laughs> Monday morning, I was teaching Shakespeare to my ninth graders on autopilot while my mind actively tried to solve this dilemma caused by this director. He can't give me an ultimatum. There's got to be a way out of this. Ah. Shakespeare wrote, no love stories, only tragedies. Star-crossed love comes from Romeo and Juliet. Blah, 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 blah. I taught this play for five periods a day for five years in a row. Back at our first rehearsal one week later, seems there was no way out of this dilemma that didn't involve heartbreak for my son. I looked around, surely this must be a mistake. Surely there's someone else. Curtis had been cast as one of two children anxiously awaiting Santa Claus and Christmas. He got to wear footy pajamas and had easy lines. I had been cast as Agent Scullery, an X-Files investigator tasked with saving Christmas from the evil Atnis, who was Santa's twin, spelled backwards, of course. I had a whole script of lines, a whole script. And I had to wear an ugly, ill-fitting suit. <sighs> okay. I looked around again and took in my cohort. There was a leading man with mouse sores. There was a plump, balding woman who seemed to be a regular. There was a long-haired, shifty, stoner type. And a grown man wearing Bart Simpson house slippers and pajamas in the middle of the day. Oh, and the stage manager who never once looked up from his pasta bread bowl. Here we were. Here we were. And then it was break time, and we went to the lounge at the VFW, permeated with smoke everywhere. The walls seemed to be breathing smoke. The hot dogs were served lukewarm and perfectly rubbery. I wondered if time stopped here. And then the director called us back. He often had us do silly things to start the warm-ups. Today, he said, turn to your right and massage the person in front of you. I made sure Curtis was in front of me. 
Before I could look who was behind me, strong hands gripped my shoulders and drove them into meltdown. I may have moaned out loud. I dared look over my shoulder. <gasps> the stoner. <laughs> I actively avoided him the rest of practice. <clears throat> As we were leaving, I noticed he was riding a bike. And the words came out of my mouth unbidden. Wanna ride? He smiled sized up my car for bike hauling capacity, found it adequate, smiled to my son, nodded, and got in with us. My heart was all a flutter. I was sweating. I don't know why. He's not my type. I had a little argument with myself. He's a grown man. He's wearing green tights and Yoda ears. Stop it. He's shifty, stop it. He's careless, stop it. He's nearly homeless, definitely stop it. <laughs> Instead, as time went by, I found myself saying, why don't you drive and flipping him my keys? <laughs> hmm. 13 years from that first fateful touch. And that shifty stoner and I have traveled the world together. We combined our families, my sons, his daughters, all ours. We lost a combined 120 pounds. He helped me stop drinking. And to this day, his touch still makes me swoon. Thank you, thank you, Michelle. Uh, what was the name of your character in that show? Agent Skull. Agent Scullery. A kind of a, a X Files ripoff. Well, we have a little. We don't always have prizes for our storytellers, but tonight we have some prizes. And because of your role as Agent Scullery, who I believe was kind of a law enforcement-ish character. Um, we have actually a volunteer that works with us who is involved with this book, and um, so for your February reading, we have for you a copy of Death by Cop. <laughs> by Wayne Reed. <laughs> there you go. You're welcome. Thank you. And is the author of uh, the, um, the 155, is the author here with us tonight? Oh, he's a film, a film student in Portland, Oregon. Very good. Oh, so he still continued with the performance career. That's great. Not a real job then. All right. Do we have anybody in our slammer box back there? And actually, while we're checking that, I also, is Aurora Melman with us tonight? 
She is. Oh, great. We're going to do something a little... So hold off on the slammer box right now because I've got something a little special for you all tonight. We don't normally do this, but it seemed kind of interesting. So do you want to wear one of my tutus? Sure. Oh, okay. You can have the light pink one. It goes, I mean, I, whatever works. All right, well, we don't have insurance, so. We do, we do have insurance, Jump. We totally have insurance. There we go. All right. Uh, so I happen to know, okay, you can sit down now. Thank you. <sighs> These actors, jeez. <laughs> So I happened to notice in the Boise Weekly recently, they did their Fiction 101 competition, and there was a 100, so the basic premise I think is you have to write a fiction story and only use 101 words. And one of those received a judge's recommendation prize, and I recognized the name because it's one of our story subscribers. And so I said, hey, do you want to come? And we don't normally read fiction here. Uh, but she said, actually, it, it, it's based on nonfiction. I just changed a few things so I could enter the competition. So. <laughs> We're going to hear a little bit about that as a special treat, getting us into the slammer mood in 101 words. Please welcome Aurora Melman. Okay, we've also broken the rules, because usually we say no notes, but this is literature, so there can be some. We got a few notes there. There we go. All right. Well, thank you, Jody. Uh, I'm a writer, not a speaker, so I do have my notes. And uh, first I'll read the entry, and then I have just a little thing about the fiction, non-fiction aspect of it. So I hope you guys enjoy. Tonight, camp is a windswept, glass-cold mountaintop. Wind swishes tent fabric. I peek outside. My headlamp beam disappears in the dark like a washed out road. I miss Evan. I'm backpacking alone to prove him wrong. I'm not better off without him. I click off my light. Wait, did I hear something? Close, inches away? Evan, a poet and a liar, once told me noise is you feeling my body's echo. I remember the hiss of his breath. Suddenly, the mountain night ignites, ripped apart. What was that? Something screamed. A cougar? Save me, I think. Panicking, vibrating, even as the realization grabs me. No one will. I sit up, scramble in the tent pocket for cold metal. My knife, it's gone. Fingertips clawed just dirt. I withhold my breath, straining to hear over heart rattle. Out there, only the rainfly flaps gently once. Muted darkness, nothing else. I'm unsure, then it hits me. I screamed, that howl was mine. So this is a fiction short, short story, otherwise known as microfiction. 
Jody asked me to read the piece, uh, even though we usually don't do nonfiction, as he mentioned. The thing is, this piece is from a longer work, a nonfiction essay. To turn it to microfiction, I took the first paragraph of the original, chopped it a little, added the cougar scream and the antagonist, Evan, and the part where our protagonist figures out that the scream was hers, not the cougar's. The thing is, the cougar scream, it really did happen to me, sort of. Last summer, I hiked 1,100 miles on the Pacific Crest Trail. In May, I camped alone a few hundred miles in on the shores of Buck Lake, California. And it's this gorgeous lake with these huge trees, all these old growth cedars. And in the middle of the night, I woke up in my hammock and then I heard it, this sort of chuck chuck. It was rhythmic, a strange night bird. And fear shot through me because I recognized that night bird. That night bird was a cougar making one of its many calls. I'd heard it on YouTube. I slept little that night. Um, so then there's the part with the scream, and that must be made up, right? <laughs> that part wasn't made up either. <laughs> a month later, 600, 800 miles north, I was camped alone again on a little lake in Oregon, way out in the wilderness. I hadn't seen anybody in 24 hours. And sometime in the night, I was wrenched from sleep and my hammock bounced and dropped with me in it, yanked by some hand or claw or monster I couldn't even fathom. And I heard screaming then, dark and guttural and low. I was sure the scream came from whatever animal had tried to rip down my hammock with me in it. As the screams subsided, their echoes rolling away, waving out and widening and running off over the lake, only then did I realize that I had been the one screaming in terror. Those were my cries echoing out in the night. I have, hadn't even recognized them. I was hardly awake when it happened, and I didn't feel them leave my body. It turned out in the morning, a knot on my hammock had yanked out while I slept, and so the hammock had dropped about two feet, which was terrifying. The moral of this story, if there is a moral, it's the thing about fiction. And the thing about fiction, it, it is rarely, if ever, fiction alone. It's made up reality woven in new ways, just as nonfiction, otherwise known as story or memory, thinks to our imaginations, often is many parts fiction. Thank you. Aurora, Aurora, don't go too far away. Because we have a prize for you, too. Yeah, come on back. This is, um, as a writer, I think you might appreciate this. This is, in fact, 155, the poet whimsy. <laughs> courtesy of Michelle Russell. Congratulations. All right, do we have an actual slammer in the box? I think you were moving up here with some tickets, so we'll go ahead and do that. Remember, it's a five-minute story. Wow, 101 words. I'm so impressed. Uh, and Aurora, if you could sign, I don't know if there's anyone left at the slammer booth to do the 
release form. Yeah, 101 words. I can't do anything in 101 words. I couldn't even answer the phone with 101 words. Oh, we have a selection here. Okay. Very, people have lots of star-crossed love stories. Faded attraction. Remember PG-13. All right, this is a story, story night regular. Uh, and so we have enjoyed her stories for a very long time. Please welcome back Bean. Bean has magical powers. When she puts her name in, it rises to the top. She can only do it every other month. That's one of our one of our guidelines for storytellers. If you're up here on stage tonight, we have to give us a give us a break. Here we go. Thank you. Hey, it's just because I'm a ham. Hi, I'm Jeannie Peterson. Fate. Destined to happen, turn out, to act in a particular way. That's the easy definition, miniature definition of fate. I've had two big fates in my life. I think you have a myriad of little fates, but a lot of times we don't even see them, recognize them. Maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic. It's a fate. The only control we have is our attitude towards our fates. But my big fates were in February, I think it was the 22nd in fact. I came back after being a traveling nurse at uh, Port Lavaca, which did me in. I think I'm through being a traveler after I was running the codes. I'm operating out the scope of my practice. I'm not supposed to be the ones running the codes. So I said, oh, I just gotta stop this. So I applied back at St. Luke's, and uh, I went to the NICU. I had worked in the adult ICU, and it floated up there when they needed help, and so, nah, let's try that. Well, it was a fate. I stayed there for 32 years. I transported for 23 years. I was clinical supervisor for 15 years. We participated in many um, clinical research, Heidi Owls from Harvard came out and taught us NIDCAP, Neonatal Individualized Developmental Care Assessment Program, nesting babies, the sound, light, everything for them. She came out and taught us three times. We were on the research for the jet ventilator, Brunel down in Salt Lake. We were on the research, University of Michigan, for uh, the oscillator ventilator, meconium aspiration. And we were on their research for ECMO put a line in their jugular, put a line in their carotid, take that blood out, do whatever you want to with it. And then I retired, and then uh, it was a wonderful fate to have. My second fate was Danny Peterson. We met in 1977, end of January. I had seen him, uh, my friend Madeline said, hey, you wanna go to play with me? Okay, and it was uh, adaptation. You suffer heart attack, go back three spaces. And I liked this dented headed fellow, I could tell he wore a cap. It was Danny, you could definitely hear him, never had to mic him. And uh, I thought, oh, 
I'll try to hustle him at the closing night party. It was our friend Dylan Marys, but um, he showed up with another girl. So I, hell, who cared? And then he called me up on, uh, like it was a Tuesday. I said, hi, this is Dan Peterson, remember me? Yeah. You wanna go to Mary's birthday party with me? Okay. So that was on a uh, Friday. No, it was on a Saturday. I had to call him sick for it. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and a bunch of us went to uh, Penn Gillies after work. I was working 311 shift in the adult ICU. And we went to Penn Gillies after work, and uh, he was there. I thought, oh, yeah. We talked afterwards, and uh, I lured him home to uh, my house. He wants to come over and smoke some hash. Yeah. <laughs> Thought he had money, he was driving an Audi. It was his mother's. <laughs> so we went home, got that nasty sex thing out of the way before our first original date. Had a first date, picked me up on a Friday, took me home on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> that was our first date. And we were together almost 31 years, married almost 28 years. It was fantastic. I would said, if Dan didn't like you, there's probably something wrong with you. I mean, you could take it with a grain of salt. I believe we're still married. We're just in extremely different time zones. Thank you. Don't, don't forget your book, 155 Sonnets. If you read one at bedtime each night, oh, it's half a year. That'll take you all the way to next fall. I forgot. Uh, I was thinking after Aurora's piece, too, that I'm pretty sure on Valentine's Day at the singles bars, I heard some cougars screaming, but. Oh, I don't have a drummer here tonight. I need a. Okay, all right. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. I, I'm missing my rim shot. I've got to remember to keep that with me. Uh, let's move on to our next featured storyteller. I believe this is her first time on the Story Story Night stage, but not. she's not new to Story Story. Please welcome Sophia Markle. Might be need, I need to lower it. There we go. I'm five foot two. I'm a, I'm a short one. Big personality, little person. Thank you. Oh yeah. Okay. Now we're good. Hello. This is my first time ever telling a story. So if I get a little wobbly, just thank you for your support. I went on a six-week, five-thousand-mile love tour, and it was when I returned that I found out the truth. I remember the H1N1 scare of 2009, and it, I know it seems like just a blip now after what we've been going through for the past two years, but he needed a place to stay. So my brother calls me and says, hey, Sophia, remember my friend, the one with six kids and two ex-wives? He needs somewhere to stay, and I was like, no. 
takes kids to exercise? I would have remembered that resume because at the time I was a single woman. I said, you know what, he can say it's fine. If he gets fresh, I have a bat, we're good to go. So a week later, he knocks on my door and I open the door and wow, he had these blue eyes that just sparkled. And he had on a red Cornhuskers hat and he was kind of like looking down and under his hat. I played it cool. That's how I do it. I said, hi, I'm Sophia, nice to meet you. And he said, you ready to go to dinner? We can go now. I said, well, I thought that you might want to take a shower because he'd been on the road coming back from California. And he said, um, that's a really good idea. I'll, I'll uh, go get my stuff. I said, okay, good. So I closed the door and I literally smelled my armpit because I thought he was acting so strange because I smelled. This is in Arizona and it's, you know, you're a little sweaty. He came back. He had his swagger back. He was fine. I showed him the shower. He took a shower and then we went to dinner. We had the most amazing time. But again, six kids and two ex-wives. There's no way I'm going to date this guy. And on top of that, he brags to me, I only date black women. It's never, never a good thing to say. So the next night, he said, why don't I cook us dinner? And I'm like, heck yeah. I mean, I don't, at the time, I wasn't much of a cook. So he cooked this amazing meal. It was delicious. We had fantastic conversation. And then he made himself scarce. Because at the time, I was a high school dance teacher in Mesa, Arizona. And I was about to go into Hell Week, which is when I have 200 dancers on stage. And I'm trying to get them in the right place at the right time. And I only have four days to do it. So next morning I woke up, went to Hell Week. He left, I didn't see him, and I was like, good riddance, goodbye bugaboo, I'm done with you. Two weeks later, he sends me a text. I think that your show's happening, I just wanted to wish you good luck, I hope it goes really well, and I'm like, why is he bothering me? <laughs> like, come on, I'm, dude, just go away. Thanks, it was good, whatever. Two weeks later, school semester's over, I'm rolling into Christmas, I'm super excited, and I get a text from guess who? From him. Is your brother coming to town um, for Christmas? And he was, actually. He never comes to town normally, but he was coming in town. I said, actually, he is. And so what he responds is, I'm actually moving to Arizona, and I really want to surprise your brother, so don't tell him I'm coming. And I was like, okay. And for a split second, a split of a teeny tiny split second. I thought he was moving to Arizona to be with me. I thought, Sophia, just chill. It's, there's no way, there's no way, it's not that deep. He had a really great time when he was here. He liked twirling on his, with his Jeep and just going out on hikes. So about a week later, we're texting because we'd gone to a party for the holidays. And I meet him outside and I see him and my heart kind of flutters a little bit and I'm like, crap. Um, so we go inside, and my brother sees his face, or my brother sees him, and my brother's face, he got this huge smile on his face. And he just, it was just sheer happiness, and love, and appreciation, and admiration. And the firm embrace that they gave each other, my heart opened. And I was like, okay, I get it. I'm open. And so for the rest of that weekend, we palled around. He helped me with my last minute shopping. We did holidays with my family. Actually, I did holidays with my family. He did whatever it is that he did. And then when my brother left, we started hanging out a little bit more. 
and the feeling started to grow. And I was like, okay, you know, this is fun. Um, we went on road trips, we talked, we dug deep, like all the bad stuff in our life, we just kind of threw it out. Because at the time I was like 31 and he was like 40. So we knew that we just need to get it out because if it's not gonna work, it's not gonna work. If it is, great. Um, and it just kept getting better and better. Um, in January and February, I actually was performing um, a show. And so what he did is he actually offered to take me to some rehearsals. He dropped me off some dinner every now and again. He brought me an ice soy chai. And I was like, yes. And he did those things intrinsically that I had wanted or hoped that a partner would do for me over the years. And so I was kind of like, okay. The picture, not perfect. But who am I to say that this is not the person for me? Because we dug deep. We shared the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, six kids and two ex-wives. There's a longer story there. You know, and, and 31 and not dating for a while and unmarried, there's a story there. And I thought, you know what? I love this man. And my mom loves him. My brother loves him. My family loves him. My friends love him. Like, this is perfect. What, why am I fighting this? And so the spring of the following year, we got engaged. And we had already planned on going to California to go see his oldest son graduate from high school. And it was a chance for me to meet five of the kiddos, and there were a set of twins in there. The kids were amazing. They were warm, and they have always been warm and kind and respectful. And I was like, okay, this is great. I met his ex-wife. She was a little prickly. It was prickly. My brother knew her, so I was like, hey, Ramadan says hello. And she was like, okay. But regardless, the kiddos were great, and it was a success. So we spent the rest of summer just hanging out, having a great time. And the fall semester, spring come, or fall semester comes around in 2010. I've got my dancers. He's looking for a new job. And he found a new job in San Antonio, Texas. So he left the January of that year, and then I headed out the following year to San Antonio to start planning our fall wedding. And in, that, in those six months, we got married. We honeymooned in Costa Rica. I got pregnant shortly after that, and then he got a job in Boise. I was not happy about moving <laughs> to Boise, Idaho. There are no black folks in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> but for richer, for poorer, let's do it. Let's go. So we get to Boise. I now say Boise. We get this adorable rental in the North End because I, I actually Googled Boise, Idaho on a side note, and Wikipedia literally listed every neighborhood. The bench, the West Bench. I was like, ooh, the North End. It looks really cute, I think. I was like, I want to go there. And he was just like, okay, we'll find a place. So um, by August 2012, our oldest Nina was born, and it, life was beautiful. I joined Stroller Strides. He was in a job that he loved. He was contributing. He worked for the Fed, helping, keeping, helping keep firefighters safe. Um, three years later, we got pregnant with our youngest, and she came in June of 2015. And my amazing husband moved us into our final house, a house that was perfect size for us to grow into, had room for my step kiddos, and it had a pool in the neighborhood. And he moved us in that house 
and three days, the day before Ella came. And so I walked out like this, and I came back with Ella, and the house was ready to go. And that's, that's what he did for me, and I just, I loved him for it. And over the next year or so, the cracks kind of started to show. Um, and he moved out of the master in fall of 2017, and he said, it's not that I don't love you, I'm just indifferent. And at the time, I didn't even know what that meant. So I said to him, the girls and I are gonna go on a trip, and I would like you to decide if you want to stay, or you should probably move out while we're away. So we went on our love tour to fill my bucket. I didn't know I had a bucket that needed to be filled, but my bucket needed to be filled. So we went to Minneapolis to see my sister, Indianapolis to see my grandmother, Chicago, Omaha to see their sister, Sophia, and we landed in Salt Lake City to see my really dear friend I hadn't seen in a while. And two days before we were heading home, he told me he moved out. He didn't want me, he left. I was crushed. Um, but because my bucket was full, I was able to kind of manage that expectation and the hurt and the pain that came with it. So it was July 20th, 2018, and he liked to keep these memory boxes of events that we would go to, like our first dance performance or um, uh, a playbill from a show, and so he actually left the memory box when he moved. So I open the box and I see like the playbills from our shows and things from our wedding and on top I see these notes it seems really strange. And I call a friend of mine's, a, friend, a family friend's ex-husband, I say, hey, I found these notes and it's really strange. Can you, do you know anything? And that's what he said to me. That his wife and my husband had been dating for two years. So I'm gonna set the picture for you. My daughter, I'll call her Stella, is six now. And when they started dating, she was six months old. And their first date was the day after I had my gallbladder removed. And I remember crying myself to sleep because I just needed a little help with the kids. So, my world crumbled. But then there was also relief. Because I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it because I would ask him time and time again, and he would always give me the same answer. And I once even woke him up from a dead sleep. Who can lie from a dead sleep? I can't. I woke him up. Blah, 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 blah. Same answer. And I was like, okay, then I, I've done everything I can. So from the day he met me, he started doing something called love dumping. He said the perfect thing, he did the perfect things, he listened, but he did more than listen, he studied me to find out exactly what to say and what to do to get me to fall in love with him. And he did it. So much so that 
he would actually sit next to me when I slept at night and whisper in my ear. And I caught him one night, but he was just saying, I love you, Sophia. And then once he had me, he started kind of messing with my mental state by doing something called gaslighting, to where he started making me think incorrectly about myself and think that I said things that just weren't true. One of the most, one of the ones that kind of comes to mind immediately is when I would say, you know, how about tonight you put the kids to bed, I'll do the dishes and we can sit down and watch TV. But see, now, Sophie, you're adding more to my plate. You wanted the kids. Or how about we go on a family walk? You want me to work all day and then go for a walk after I've worked all day? And I was like, well, yeah, it's a family walk. No. And so he just would do things that would just make me think that I was losing my mind. And then one day in 2016, he said, let's go on a family walk. I was so happy, a family walk, let's go. I'm so excited, like, got my babies in the stroller, we're rolling out, and I got my hunky husband, and we run into this family. And I see the wife and I was like, she's got a big ass. But she's white, she's not a threat. Because right, he only dates white girls, or black girls, right? And so, and they're a really cute couple. Her husband's a little, I mean, he, he's, he's not what I would have pictured her with. And that was her. So we started inviting them to our events, our family dinners, and Chris is traveling. Oh my gosh, he's traveling all the time. Um, and he's mentoring, and they're working on a business in the office. And he, he actually encourages me to befriend her husband because he's the more of the stay-at-home parent. And I was like, okay, that's kind of weird, but that's fine. And all my friends were really worried about what was going on, but I did everything I knew to do to kind of see if he was telling the truth. Um, I lost my place. But the reason why I missed the signals is because I was doing my best to be a good mom, be a good wife, and I was actually suffering from postpartum anxiety. So I was literally just bouncing off the walls trying to do everything right, which I found out later. So in the end, he left. He left me. He discarded me. He used me for my body, my mind, my finances, and then in the end, he groomed another woman to take my place, and he left, and he left everything. A house, his father's ashes. Originally, when I would share this story, I shared it because I didn't want to be alone in the trauma of what it has done to me. And then I shared the story because I was embarrassed, but I wanted him to be embarrassed, which he wasn't and still isn't. And now I shall my story because the cycle of abuse has to end. And so in those moments when I hear 
the echo of his voice, I can silence it more and more. And in those glorious moments when I sink into self-assurance and happiness, it feels so pickin' good. And finally this, I found love, my children. The love of a child is so pure. And for me, that's a perfect place to begin again. Thank you. Thank you, Safia. Yes, I'm holding your book. Okay, I'll give that to you too. Uh, first, I'm gonna read a little something from this. Do you think that's okay? All right. It's love. The Boise group definitely has, okay, I'm actually reading our sponsor message. The Boise group definitely has a faded attraction for Boise. We are a small, carefully curated group of deeply experienced real estate agents who live and work in Boise's most Boise neighborhoods. We are serving the world's greatest clients who have fallen in love with the Treasure Valley, and it's in our stars to deliver exceptional professional real estate skills in a 100% Boise style. Thank you, Boise group. All right, we are going to take a little break, give you a chance to visit the restrooms, visit our bar either in the back here or in the lobby. You can also sign up at our Slammer booth. And Ken Harris is going to be playing during intermission, so we'll see you back in about 10 minutes. going to begin our second act with a feature song from Mr. Harris, which he has titled, I think, maybe special for this evening, The Story Story Boogie.
Thank you, Ken. All right, let's have that slammer box boogie its way on up here. And we'll start with a slammer in our second act. See who we've got in there. Ready to share their story on star-crossed love. Stories of fatal attraction. Bum, bum, bum. This is the night for John Matai. And he's going to share a story. John, paging John. Here he comes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, John. about the right height. Hi everyone, uh, my name is John Mathai. I'm originally from South Carolina, so bringing a bit of geographic diversity to this crowd, and if you think that's the only type of diversity I'm bringing, you're probably right. Um, so, cool. Um, this, so I grew up in a small town in South Carolina, and the way things work there is your mom or your dad knows someone who knows someone who knows someone, and they're gonna do something for you in return for you doing something for them later. And that is how I got to go to Ecuador when I was in between eighth and ninth grade for a summer. There was a very well-to-do private school in Atlanta and my school administrator knew their school administrator and it was essentially a subsidized trip to a foreign country with a bunch of strangers. So I was like, great, I'll do it. Uh, so I show up at the Atlanta airport and there are five other students that I have never met before, never texted before. I didn't have a Facebook so I couldn't stalk them. And they're at the gate talking with their parents saying goodbye and I walk up to the chaperones and I'm like, hi, I'm John. And they're like, great, nice to meet you. Where are your parents? And I was like, they dropped me off at the door. Uh, I, I don't know, I'm coming back, right? Um, so, I go to Ecuador and I learn Spanish and there are three guys and three girls. All of us are roughly the same age and you can kind of see where this is going and there's this one really cute girl and like throughout the course of the summer we're talking in Spanish and in English and getting to know each other better and doing all the fun, young, lovey-dovey stuff that you can do when you're in a foreign country like go for walks and make out and hold hands. Um, <laughs> And so, because we were much, such a small cohort, the chaperones, and like by the end of the session, they had really developed a lot of trust and respect for us. And so we spent the last week at a small beach town in Ecuador, and they were just like, all right, just don't do drugs and don't get pregnant. And I was like, eh, those are the same rules my parents gave me, so I can abide. Um, so, we spent the week like hanging out in the hammocks and like hanging out with the locals and it was great. And you know, I was, uh, what, in between eighth and ninth grade. Like, <laughs> sex was like on the mind but not front of mind. I was like, mm, I don't know, never done it before. I was the oldest so I didn't have an older brother or older sister saying like, do this, don't do this. Um, so I was like, all right, well, we'll see. Um, so. We go to Quito, the capital city, to fly home, and we have three days in the capital city, and they put us up at a relatively nice hotel, and 
all the chaperones are women. And we get into the lobby, and the three guys, we all look at each other, and it dawns on us that one of us is going to have their own room, because there's only two people to a room. And so we check in, and the chaperone hands me my key card, and then hands the other two guys their key cards. And I'm looking at this like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, I am not a lucky person. But this, this makes up for it. So we go to dinner. They like take us out to dinner, actually in the hotel at the restaurant, the whole group. And at this point, like, uh, one of the guys had ended up developing a thing for the niece of the host family. And so, like, they were a little pair, which was hilarious, because he spoke the worst Spanish, and she didn't speak any English. Um, so it was a purely physical connection. Um, and then there were some, like, other goings-ons. So we, like, all hang out, and we watch a movie. And it's fun. And then I start to stumble my way through the conversation of, like, hey, you know, maybe if you're interested, would you want to, like, come back to... And there was no like, shh, yes. It was like, no, I'm going to let you finish fumbling your way through this, because uh, this is great. And I did. I finished. She said yes. And so we go back to my room, which had a really nice view overlooking the city. And I put on another movie or whatever. And <clears throat> I will keep this PG-13, I promise. Um, we're in bed, well, on top of it. And I'll never forget. I'm on my back, uh, looking up at her, and there's this mutual, just like this bloom of understanding and desire and just urgency. <laughs> so we both bolt from the bed and run to the bathroom, and she starts vomiting in the toilet. And I start vomiting in the tub because I felt like giving her the toilet was the gentlemanly thing to do. <sighs> so we finish with round one and we put our clothes back on. I walk her back to her room and proceed to waddle back to mine. And the whole cohort is bedridden for the next two days with the worst bout of food poisoning I have ever received in my life. We did not sit next to each other on the plane. They managed to get everyone aisle seats for easy bathroom access. And I never talked to her again. <laughs> Thank you. Well, John, you're lucky tonight. You got drawn to tell your story and you got 155 sonnets. Oh my gosh, I was so uncomfortable during that story. <sighs> like food poisoning was a relief. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank God, food poisoning. Um, although, don't they say like, your first experience with love is something you carry with me, with you all through your future relationships. I, like, I don't know, it must be kind of like, I don't know, you get that 
certain feeling, and then you're like, hmm. <laughs> Gonna bring up our next featured storyteller, our last featured storyteller, who as far as I know, does not have food poisoning. Uh, first time on our stage, please welcome Spencer Harbour. <laughs> Thank you. A checklist of things I needed to perform to become a love-worthy gentleman. Riding horses, pushing cows, vaccinating, haying, roping, rodeo, changing pipe, welding, backhoe work, hunting and fishing. All the, I did all those things, but I certainly didn't love them. What I loved to do was making other people laugh, reciting movie lines, and performing. But I grew up in Salmon, Idaho. <laughs> Population 3,000. My old man was a water well driller, and my mom worked for the fish and game. But my mom also was involved with community theater. She was an actress and a singer, and later she was a director, and she helped guide me into a life on stage. I first started when I was six years old, and then being on stage and performing is where I felt like my true purpose. Well, in the big city of Boise, I was right there, <laughs> living my purpose, performing as a car salesman. <laughs> oh, I was still acting, Oh, yes, sir, of course, we will cut the price of this car down and make it fit in your budget. <laughs> I also played the part as of, a, of a successful provider. I mean, I had an iron shirt, iron pants, nice shoes, baller watch, coiffed hair, looking sharp. I also had two cars, a nice house. I had beautiful twin girls. I had the perfect companion. Check, check, check. Well, over time, my relationship with the companion, it became toxic. She had been a heavy drinker and just becoming more and more vehement, more deceitful and violent. And I had to make the break. And when I broke the news to her, I went to work and she had taken the kids and barricaded herself inside of our house and called the cops and claimed she was being abused. So when I went back to the house, I realized that I was told that I could not enter the premises or I could not, and I could not see my kids. On pure conjecture, I lost sole custody of the kids. I couldn't see them, even though I was, at the time, a stable breadwinner. So I was at the mercy of a volatile ex with wildly swinging emotions. So this made pickups and drop-offs with the kids a near impossibility because a lot of times the authorities were involved and everything was messy. And everything, all the circumstances surrounding me at that time made me sour. And being a sour car salesman, <laughs> never a good thing. So I started calling in sick, which technically wasn't really a lie because I was sick of harassing people trying to come up with witty comebacks to, I'm just looking. So I just stopped ignoring, I started ignoring my sales manager's phone calls telling me to come into work. I just stopped going. I ignored his voicemails. I just didn't care anymore. I didn't care about a lot of things. I didn't care about haircuts or regular showers. 
I definitely didn't care about paying any bills or answering my mail. My car got repoed, I let that happen. My, car, my house was foreclosed, I was like, take it. I moved five times in as many months, sold off everything that I owned and scraped up just enough money to, to afford rent, a 450-foot shack on Hayes Street behind a house there in the North End. I lived completely broke. I was stressed to the gills. I was still gaining weight like crazy. And I think that's because Papa Murphy's accepts food stamps. So I was just at the edge for just long enough. I made friends with the bottom. I mean, it was just right there. My kids were gone and I had no identity. Some friends of mine had become DJs and they introduced me to the electronic music scene in Boise. And it was there that I sought refuge. And the music just made me feel at peace and I could just avoid guilt and shame and pain just long enough to flow into a better feeling. And I felt super comfortable at these parties walking amongst all these lonely broken souls in the dark all hoping to cash in on some form of ecstasy. And massage was a universally accepted uh, uh, currency at the time, and I got real good at it. I loved giving massages. I would massage the shoulders and feet of previous partners in my life, and I found that it always relieved a lot of my stress. So, when someone would ask me for a massage at these parties, I set my hands at 10 and 2, and I taxied these people to places far, far away. <laughs> and the fare that I received for having given said ride was the praise that I longed for. And then one night, after giving a massage to a good friend, she told me, you should do this for a living. So... What has two thumbs and still has a bunch of student debt from Apollo College? <laughs> this guy. I studied massage therapy, I studied A&P, I got to wear scrubs, I smoked weed with my classmates on breaks, and then we would uh, uh, get together at, at labs and all massage each other for experience. It was fantastic. <laughs> at massage school, I made a friend he had a rock collection he liked talking about, and I loved saying movie lines to him, and it was kind of a good relationship. But mostly, we would swap stories about psychedelic experiences and how they shaped our reality. <laughs> and we became real close. One day, he told me that a friend of his, an uber-loyal and dedicated deadhead that had claimed to have been to over a thousand concerts, had gifted him several reams of this orange sunshine blotter acid he kept it sealed in a metal barrel in the middle of a cow pasture where he dug and buried it and kept it buried in this pasture since the 60s, man. I was intrigued. Who wouldn't be? So, days later, my friend gave me two little bits of piece of paper and he said to use that at my discretion. So. There was a big music festival coming up near Riggins, Idaho, and I decided to save this for the trip. A friend of mine drove me up there that evening. I made camp, and I told myself, look, I'm just gonna take one of these things. And, uh, I mean, if the story were correct, we're talking about a 40-year-old little itty-bitty piece of paper a quarter the size of my pinky nail. 
How strong could it be? Jimi Hendrix? Whatever. 20 minutes later. Excuse me while I kiss the sky. I became hyper aware of everything. The ground, the sky, the trees, the stars, the music. It just warm thumps of electro just wrapped my heart in soul submissive hugs and the lights were vibrant and, and glowing with a million different intricate textures. It was beautiful and I danced. I danced my ass off. I, steam was just flowing off me and sweat was just coming down in buckets and my legs cramped up and someone had to like come and massage my legs. I didn't care. I was still going. I was flowing. I danced to let go. I danced to heal. And the entire time I was feeling the most intense love that I ever felt in my entire life. And that was all for me. Finally, at sunrise, standing on the banks of the Salmon River, taking in the sounds of the water pulling itself across the rocks, each ripple grounding me deeper into a peaceful morning. I sat in the sand and I meditated. And with sparkling diamonds rolling down my cheeks, I decided then and there that it was time to get back to my purpose. I deserved that. So, back at the shack on Purple Haze Street, <laughs> reinvigorated and starving, I hadn't eaten all weekend. And my brain was zapped of glucose and that precious neurotransmitter serotonin, which is the feel-good chemical. Sugar sounded amazing. So I gathered up what remaining change I had and I walked up to DK Donuts on State Street <laughs> while still in an altered state. I ordered two of my favorites, a buttermilk bar and a maple bar, and I sat down to eat. And over I saw a woman, an elderly woman, sitting at a table and she was asking patrons for change. She seemed in need and I felt compelled to give something. So I walked up to her and I offered her my buttermilk bar and with a toothless grin and gnarled fingers, she took the bar from me and she placed its stickiness on top of a Boise Weekly she'd been using for a plate. And a Boise Weekly just popped out at me. Those are free. I need to get one of those. So with a half-eaten maple bar and a Boise Weekly in the other hand, I hobbled home <laughs> to look for the signs that I was looking for. And I got to my place and I started reading and these words started popping out as significant, not in any particular order, but it was like 3D. So I grabbed a Larry Miller Honda pin I had and then I started circling words. Pur purpose, meaning, love, yeah, yeah, that's good, I like that. Passion, togetherness, respect, oh yeah, flipping the back page, performs, tryouts, tryouts. And I circled this. It was an ad for a tryout at a play. I had to do it. It was a sign. It was right there. So when the time came, I went to the performance, the audition. I performed and I got the part. It was working. It was all working. I was following my passion and the doors were opening for me. 
And on the first day of practice, the director says, all right, we're all going to warm up. Everybody stand up, turn to your right, and massage the shoulders of the person in front of you. So I set my hands at 10 and 2, and I placed my hands on the woman standing in front of me. And her shoulders are wound as tight as piano wires. But my warm grip melted her into a deep guttural moan. Uh. Oh yeah. Still got it. After practice, the woman saw that I rode a bike and she asked, do you want to ride? So in my head, I'm going, of course Tubby wants a ride. <laughs> so I loaded my bike in the back of her Pontiac Vibe, said hello to her son who was reading Harry Potter in the back, and we drove home. And on the way, she was just chatting. We were sharing stories, and she was talking about her time teaching in Los Angeles and Hawaii. I don't quite remember much of the conversation because I was too busy looking at her body language. She had one hand on the wheel. She had her right hand behind playing with her hair. And then she had her left leg propped up on the dashboard. <laughs> just chatting and driving. Now... I'm no body language expert, but seemed like she was open to my company. So she drops me off and she says, do you want to ride tomorrow? And knowing the ride up Vista is uphill, I'm a large gentleman, I'm, yeah, I would love a ride. So the next day she shows up with her son to give me a ride. She flips me the keys and goes, I can't stand driving. Could you drive? <laughs> of course. And I felt so warm that this woman trusted me to drive her and her child. And that was our arrangement through the entire play. And it's still our arrangement today. <laughs> and that's our arrangement. For a lifetime supply of massages and chauffeuring, I won the hand of my true love, my best friend, and my teacher. She helped me get sober. I lost 60 pounds finding yoga. I got my master's degree. She helped me find the barber. <laughs> and most importantly, she helped me find my self-respect. And we successfully combined our families. Her two boys and my two girls became our children. And we traveled the world together, living and loving in Tokyo. We lived in Munich, a bit in time in India. La Grande. <laughs> and here, back to Boise, 13 years after that audition. <clears throat> well, it took a lot of trust from both of us to go to that audition and go through with it and a bunch of weird stuff had to happen to help guide us here to you all here tonight to present this tale of Faded Attraction.
excited for you guys to find that moment. <sighs> so, Spencer, would you like a book? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you haven't read it already? Oh, I. Haha, <laughs> <read it>. yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, Carolyn, can we also get him a tutu from the green room? <laughs> I feel like you're missing out now with everybody up here with their tutus. All right, let's. We're going to bring the slammer box back and have some more fun with some slammers. <sighs> you know, it is tricky. I never know when I get a massage. Uh, how vocal to be, you know, like, do you, like, if it feels really good, do you kind of, hmm, or is that, like, creepy? There you go. But I don't want to be silent and unappreciative. No, 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 we appreciate when we're getting that feedback. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, let's see who we got in here. What would be amazing? if it was the girl from that other slammer story who had food poisoning. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be incredible. Well, unless this girl's name is Jonathan, it's not gonna happen this time. Jonathan Lithgow, you're up for a slam. Ah, right here. Hi, everybody. So I do have a um, food poisoning story, but mine was in China, so I think we're okay. Um, I'm actually here with my first love. Her name is Abby, she's sitting over there, and we met when we were going to West Junior High School, which no longer exists. Um, but stayed really, really, really close best friends ever since. Um, <laughs> so, at first I thought I knew the story I was gonna tell, and then I misheard you, and I thought you said fatal attraction, and it went in a whole different direction. Oh, I was wrong, it's faded attraction. Oh, okay, okay, great. So with faded attraction, that got me thinking. And you know, I think all of us think of faded attraction, and we hope to find what these two found. And I think we all hope that we don't see tragedy, and that we don't see the heartbreak. But I think that's the thing, is that I think when we get to our stories, and it's not exactly the happy ending, I think really we have to wonder if our story is over yet. So I'm a Boise guy, uh, went to Bora High School, my dad went to Bora High School, my mom went to Boise High School. We've been here for forever. Um, and I met my wife about 15 years ago now uh, at Boise State. She walked into my political science course and couldn't take my eyes off her. I think I turned around and I looked at her walking to the back seat and I just stared. It was one of those things where you couldn't resist. And I'm kind of forward and I kind of just jump into things. So I, in the middle of the, the break, I ran up next to her and I said, so, are you gonna sit down, are you gonna move down by me or should I move up by you? <laughs> and in that momentary stall, I said, I'll grab my stuff. I grabbed my stuff, I moved up, and we started dating immediately. Within two months, we knew that we were gonna get married. Within four months, we were engaged, and a year later, we got married at the Boise Botanical Gardens. And 
to wrap this into a five-minute story, it's a much longer story, but, but part of me was I grew up super conservative Christian at um, going to Euclid Avenue Church of the Nazarene, downtown North End, Boise. And I learned two things. One, on one hand, I learned about the truth about love, how to love your fellow man, how to love God, and how if you do those two things, you've done everything right. But I also learned that I was a sinner and that I was a really terrible person because I was gay and there wasn't a place for me in the society that I saw. And so I thought that to be a good person, I was to live a good life and to do the things that people expected me to, to live and appear to be a holy person. So I looked for that perfect girl, and when I found her, I married her, and I said, this is God's plan. This is what my fated attraction was. And if I stay honored and committed, then I will be a good person, and I will leave the world being a good person. For 12 years, we were happily married. We had two boys, two beautiful, beautiful, wonderful boys, now 14 and 11. But one day, when we were living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, moved there for a job, my seven-year-old came home. He was winding himself up on the swing set and letting himself go. And he was telling me about his new friends that he met at school. And he laughed and he said, you know, I have this one really funny friend. We're kind of interesting friends because, well, one time we accidentally kissed. And I said, what? What do you mean? And he said, well, you know, he was twisting up on the swing and we slipped and we kissed. And well, we've done it like 11 times since. It's very... <laughs> He's a very specific, mathematically-minded kid. And I thought, huh. But see, I believed that things like sexuality were all learned. And I believed that if I raised them right and protected them, they would never be tempted in the way that I was. And to hear him say that this had happened, I thought, what have I done? I have done so many things for the last eight years to make sure this moment never happened. And from that moment, I got scared and I got worried and I started studying. And I remember doing some research and finding out that kids that come from rejecting families have a 65% chance of attempting to take their life when their families reject them. I couldn't accept him. I was in a place that all I could do was deny and to push it away and to use the only two tools that I knew, which was shame and judgment, to try to make sure that he never followed through with that. So I thought about it for a while. And one day, driving on my way to work, the rain was pouring down. I still remember the song that came on. It was Josh Howard, um, The Kingdom. And as the song was coming up and down and crescendoing, I realized what could happen. In that moment, I was transported to 10 years in the future. I saw myself in this imagined place at being at the funeral of my kid who had tried to take his life and had because I had been too weak to stand in front of my own shame and to address what was going on for me. The tears poured. I don't know how I got through the day. But at the end of the day, I came home and I pulled, and I pulled who was the love of my life out of our boy's bedroom, saying the prayers for what I knew would be the last time because I knew that she, would, she wouldn't be able to stay after that. And I told her, that I was gay, and she didn't believe it. And it took us six months of fighting to figure out that we had to end, and she ended up moving back to Boise. It's taken me another five years, moving from Pittsburgh to New York to DC to Hong Kong, to finally have a chance to get back home near my boys. And I'll tell you, this, I think, is the reason of my fated attraction. 
It wasn't to have the perfect love story. It wasn't just to experience heartbreak. But it was to learn the truth about what I learned back at that Christian church down in the North End. Not only is it all about loving each other and loving God, but there is no love greater than that person that lays down their life for someone else. And it was only the love of my son that was powerful enough for me to blow up the perfect life that I created and to come to terms with my biggest fear and face it so that he didn't have to. And that, as hard of a journey as it has been, is worth it all. Thank you. It's magic spell. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Wow. What did you say? Crystal, crystal, oh, crystal, sparkling diamonds. sparkling diamonds. Yeah, I got one on this side. I, somehow the left side isn't working, so I'm <laughs> off balance. Uh, I think we do want to hear a poem. <laughs> I think I'll read number six for no particular reason. Oh, actually, I should probably read 22, shouldn't I? Oh boy, I hope this is good. Sonnet number 22 by Curtis Matthew Russell from 155, The Poet Whimsy. I've got a lot of jumbled sentiments Addicted to those camels, got bad breath. <laughs> I'd even weep, whipped out my tin of mints. I'm just another to die a sad death. If you plan on dancing on my tombstone, then you better wear those stiletto heels. You've got no trust, ripping envelope seals. Of course I've been writing letters to her. Who else actually cares about me? Not you. You treat me like fresh raw manure. I endure your strife and still you doubt me? Paranoia might be your choice fragrance, but it's a scent that needs much maintenance. <laughs> Number 22, everybody. Wow, the film student in Portland. Let's get our slammer box on its way back here. I will tell you that number two, uh, the one I was about to read featured an ostrich. <laughs> that was the first one. Here comes the slammer box. Matthew Russell is 18 at the time of the completion of this collection and hasn't accomplished much with his life. (laughs) 
Let's find out what this person has accomplished. Please welcome Abby Stimson. Abby. Yeah. Oh, on this side, you have to walk all the way around. you all to know that I just looked at Jonathan. I'm the first love in middle school. And I said, there's no way in hell I'm going to get called up. <laughs> I challenged the universe. First mistake. Um, this is my first storyteller's night. I've never been to an event like this. Um, I've definitely never spoken uh, to a crowd, so I feel a little nervous. I'm not as eloquent as he is, um, but I do have a story to tell. So uh, I, I've been married for 20 years. I have five beautiful boys, and um, our youngest the other night is seven, and he said, Mom, how did you know, how did you know that Dad was the one? And I said, Jack, I didn't. <laughs> I actually, actually thought he was really cocky. And with no like good reason. Have you ever met someone that's just like so full of themselves and you're like, what am I missing? <laughs> like, you're like, I mean like good for you. Confidence is good, like congratulations. But like, what am I missing? <laughs> um, that was my first impression. <laughs> We met uh, through mutual friends, and I remember um, Jonathan and I had actually just broken up for like the umpteenth bazillionth time. What we didn't understand was that we were best friends, and now it all makes sense. But, uh, <laughs> really. <laughs> so, anyways, my mutual friends wanted to get me out of the house because I was feeling sad, and they were like, come to this party, and I was like, I don't really want to, but I will. And uh, they came and picked me up, and they said, there's this guy there, and he's just kind of annoying, kind of cocky, kind of full of himself, just ignore him. And then they were telling me about some of the other people at the party. Well, we show up at the party, and this guy walks up to me and instantly starts talking to me, and he's wearing a Mr. Rogers t-shirt. <laughs> And on the front it says, can you say nifty? And on the back it's got Mr. Rogers giving you a thumbs up saying, I knew you could. And uh, my girlfriend's like, no, that's, that's him. And I'm just like, great. So I, I don't know how to be rude. It's not something I was blessed with, so I'm trying to be polite and cordial. I'm like, okay, like, thank you. So um, we visit very briefly and then I enjoy the rest of the party and I don't really pay much attention, but he keeps kind of popping up here and there. Um, how do you massage my shoulders? That would have been the end of the night, but uh, that was another day. So anyways, uh, I, I wanted to go home. I still was just, you know, I was young and heartbroken and very dramatic about the whole thing, so I just wanted to go home and wallow in my, my pity. And, uh, I told my girlfriend, you know, I'm gonna to go to the bathroom and then I want us to go. And so when I was in the bathroom, he goes up to my girlfriend and he looks at my girlfriend, Jessica, and he's like, give me your friend's number. And she's like, no. <laughs> I, 
no, <laughs> you're not even her type. <laughs> and uh, then Jessica gets up to go do something. He looks at my friend, Nanette, and he's like, Nanette, just give me a shot. Give me a shot. Give me your number. And she's like, look, I'll give you her number, but don't tell her I gave you her number. <laughs> she loves to take credit for the fact that we've been married 20 years. Loves to. And I'm like, you're the girl who didn't want anyone to know you gave him my number. So anyways, um, long story short, I remember our first date, and we went to um, Cafe Olay, of all places, not super romantic. But I remember us just talking, and he felt like an old friend. And I had never dated someone that looked at my eyes when I was talking. I had never um, experienced someone wanting to know my story who I was, why I was the way I was, and it, it was really overwhelming. And I remember going home and um, telling my mom about it. And my mom said, you know, be careful, those are, that's how it starts. <laughs> I didn't like that <laughs> because I was, I was very young. I wasn't looking for anything serious, but this, this young man was persistent. Um, one thing about my husband is if he, if he wants something, he will achieve it. He's, he's driven. He's the most cocky nerd I've ever met in my life. <laughs> you guys, nerd. Like, he totally, like, he watches, like, this cartoon called Naruto. I'm not even sure if I'm saying it right. And I'm like, what are we watching right now? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. See, I'm already offending someone in the crowd. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's like, it's such a good show, it's all about family. And I'm like, it's just really dramatic. <laughs> but I love it, and our, like, our opposites blended so beautifully. And uh, I recently thought back to, I, I had a father that I've lost from cancer, I've lost a mom and a sister to suicide. I've had a lot of, a lot of heavy, tragic things happen in my life. And I was thinking the other day about the way we perceive what we're given in this life, the challenges that we're given. And, and it occurred to me for everything that I've lost, I've been given in my children and in my relationship with him. And the fact that we're 20 years into this and he still hides in the closet and jumps out and scares me. <laughs> he knows not to say sorry with flowers, but with a big yummy sandwich. <laughs> when I am Oompa Loompa pregnant, he tells me I've never looked more beautiful. Um, I'm going to wrap it up with what my mom's advice to me was, is that you know you found your person when home no longer is a place but a person. The reason we only have stairs on this side is so I can catch them with the book and still when they get to the front here. Um, we're gonna need the slammer box and... Uh...
we're gonna need to do about 13 more slammers. Because <laughs> I got 13 books to give away. <laughs> do we have enough to make it? <laughs> I can give them each six books. All right, Sam Lewis, you're next up. Sam. So I just found out about Story Story this afternoon uh, by my girlfriend, and thank you to Safiyo, uh, performing tonight. And a number of themes that people touched on today are things that I wanted to talk about, but I was going to start with, uh, with dating apps. And just a couple of years ago, I was married happily, and I'm thinking about people trying to meet through dating apps, and I'm like, how does that modern dating work? I, I don't know. Thank God I'll never have to know. And then I find myself in the throes of a divorce, and that was in 2020. And I came across um, OkCupid, okay heard about it from the minimalists on their podcast. It said, met someone great, and I said, all right, I'll try that one. And um, I knew I wasn't emotionally available, so I thought, all right, I'll swipe. So I, let's figure out how this whole modern dating works. I'd met every other girl at school before. <laughs> so it was all new. Uh, the divorce hadn't gone through yet, but I was just trying. I was like, what is this going to look like? I'm not there yet, but all right. Got to prepare. And so I dated a couple of women, wasn't emotionally available, and I knew that was going to, how it was going to go. And then it was, uh, my divorce had finalized, it was later in the year, I'm still not looking for anybody. And I thought, all right, I'll get back, I'm going to try this swiping again, it's fun, you know, you're swiping, 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 swiping. And I come across this one, and I'm like, oh, she's, she's cute, right? Look, looks like we got some things in common, okay. And we end up chatting. And she says, well, I swiped on you back in February, which is actually two years ago this month. And we got to know each other. And when we talk about faded to be together, find a lot of things that we have in common that are very interesting. She's six days older than me. We're both born at St. Luke's. And we have a running joke that we were high-fiving as our moms. My mom was going in, her mom was going out. So it was a C-section, they stayed a few days, so right, we met six days, pretty close. We think there was a high-five. And then we found out that, you know, she went to Silver Sage, I went to Amity. We grew up in similar areas, but not quite the same. And then we're talking about her brother going to Indian Lakes Pool, and I swam there every day, every summer growing up. And we found out just through discussions, we'd probably cross paths a whole lot of times. And then we were talking just the other night, a couple nights ago, and depending on how old some of you are, you might remember this movie, The, the Commitments. Does anybody remember the movie, The Commitments, yeah. from the 90s? <laughs> Early 90s. We were like nine years old, and somehow our parents were watching it, and we're like, let's watch this depressing movie about music and musicians and drugs and things like that. And she told me about a music artist. We're listening on the radio, and I said, oh, man, that sounds a lot like The Commitments. 
So I pull it up on my phone, and she's like, seriously, I didn't think anyone else had ever listened to the, those songs. Got Mustang Sally. And I guess what I've come to know in just the last year and a half, um, I wasn't sure that I was going to find love, at least not this soon. Um, it does seem like the universe does line things up. And she knows that. She's probably laughing. Someone said, of course, I didn't think I was going to get picked. Of course, I got picked for tonight to come up here. And she's my best friend. And as someone else had mentioned uh, just before about um, home is not a place, it's who you're with. And we tell each other all the time. We're very gooey and sappy. And we, it never gets old. And, and we know that. And we love being able to, to be like that with each other. But it is to say, you're home. Um, you feel like home. feels like home. We spend all this time together. And um, I have three daughters. She has two daughters. And we have a lot of daughters together. <laughs> There's a lot going on. They kind of overlap in ages, but uh, from 7 to 16. And uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. But um, it feels like we crossed paths a lot and finally found the moment where we would get together. So, yeah. a great evening talking about love and I'm glad that people stuck with the real theme which was faded attraction and not me when I said fatal attraction that would have been <laughs> that would have been a very different show um, I mean I'm interested <laughs> maybe we'll do that one later I do want to let you know you guys amazing stories tonight um, wow yeah And I know there may be some of you out there who all, I believe all of you have a story, but sometimes it's hard to overcome that feeling of like, I just don't know how to do it, I don't know the rules, or well, there aren't really any rules. But to discover that, we do offer our Story Story Studio, and the next one is gonna be April 5th here at Jump. You can find it on our website or on Jump's website, and it's with our studio guide, Patty O'Hara, who is super fun, and, you, and it's just a great, community workshop where you hear each other working out the beginnings of your stories. Uh, so that's happening then in the loft. Uh, I've been told that we have a technical difference tonight that I need to, oh, he's already there, all right. So a cue is going to magically happen and I didn't need to, didn't need to even look back there. Um, but we have come to our path in the road. If anyone wants a book of sonnets, Come up and see us at the end. Stories come from the land as well as its people, and I want to acknowledge that we are on the land of the Shoshone Bannock people. Story Story Night is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive funding from the Boise City Department of Arts and History. Remember, you can listen to podcasts from all our shows. Those are on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Go to storystorynight.org and click on podcasts. You'll find it there. We also have a radio show, which typically plays the Radio Boise the Sunday before our live show. So we just had one this last Sunday. 
It's Story Storing Out on Stray Theater. And if you want to see our previous shows or watch this one again, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. And those videos come out a week or two after the show. Thank you to our crew, technical director, podcast engineer, Stephen Baldessari. Thank you to Ken Harris. Thank you to our photographer, Chelsea Hirata. Thank you to our volunteers and our volunteer coordinator, Natalia DiGiosia. Thank you to our board of directors. Thank you to our story subscribers, our camera operator, Stan Carey. Thank you to Jump and the crew here for hosting us. Join us next on the last Tuesday, March 29th, for the continuation of our reboot and story, story night. Story, story, good night. Beginning, middle, now, at the end. Authentic, inspiring, spontaneous. So thank you. You shared your stories and you really listened. I might have come here as a stranger. But now I'm leaving as a friend. There's more. Here it comes. Almost there. And so the story never ends. Thank you for being here tonight. We'll see you for rebellion. Story, story, good night. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers, in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Boise Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. Thank you.